Welcome to the Basilea Hollywood Podcast, a community of friends committed to the message and practice of Jesus and His Kingdom. So God, thank you for Brady. Thank you for what you have been working in him. And I just pray for ears to hear that we would um, not be... uh, not be calloused. I just pray, make us soft to hear what he has to say. Amen. Hey, guys. Good morning. I love that song. That's one of my faves. Uh, it, is this still on? Thanks. Uh, guys, let's give it up for Eric real quick on the soundboard. <laughs> Holding it down. Thank you, brother. Brother. Uh, we... Uh, it's really great to see all of you. Some of you I haven't seen in a long time, and some of you I've never met. Some of you have children now that didn't have children before. Uh, yeah, some of you have different color hair than last time I saw you. Some of you have no hair. So it's really nice to see everyone. I, uh, we have a pretty, pretty great text to get through today, and I'm excited to share it. So... Uh, We're going to go to it together. It's Matthew chapter 20 and starting in verse 29. Chris, do we have a slide for that? It says, as they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. That's Jesus, the him. And two blind men sitting by the side of the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd sternly told them to be quiet, but they cried all the more, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped, and he called them, and he said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. So if you guys do me a favor, let's all close our eyes. I'm going to keep my eyes open because I have to read. But everyone else, close your eyes. I just want to share something with you. Imagine if you were in the cabinet of a person that was about to be sworn in as the next president of the United States. And while you were en route to the inauguration, the candidate stopped the motorcade and all the fanfare to pull up on the side of a crowded road. Against the advice of the head of his security team and his staff, he stopped so that he could talk with and have compassion on people that were outcasts. In the midst of the compassionate moment, what if you realized that the gesture was not for a photo op or for a Twitter feed, but because it was the reality of the person that was the president-elect? What if Here, she said to you after getting back into the car, this is what my administration is going to be about. You can open your eyes. As we look into this text today, I want to set the stage for the encounter with what has been happening and what will soon happen. We learned from Janelle last week that Jesus has spoken of his future three times, where he would go to Jerusalem and suffer and die and give his life as a ransom for many. 
many people are following him and some are potentially convinced that he will lead a violent military campaign to overthrow. Thank you, Seuss. We are the, this is sort of like the place of seamless transitions. So just, <laughs> just really want to welcome everyone. So he's got a lot of people following him. Some are thinking that he's going to overthrow the Romans in a violent way. And some are thinking maybe in a more mystical way that he's the chosen king of Israel's God, Yahweh. And that somehow when Jesus reaches the Temple Mount, that Yahweh is going to show up and reestablish someone in the line of David as king. So you've got a lot of anticipation sort of surrounding this. And we also know that the air is super pregnant with what is going to happen next. Because in a few verses after this, Jesus is going to get onto the donkey and he's going to be welcomed into the city as people are throwing down palm branches and paying him homage and glorifying Israel's God. And this is the triumphant entry that we learn about when we do Palm Sunday. I'm sure you guys, if you grew up in church, you can sort of remember that moment. But that's what's about to happen. And the text says that the crowd is large, and I imagine that it's super noisy, and that there's a lot of commotion, and that also the anticipation of what Jesus is about to do to usher in his kingdom is great. So as we read on, the two blind men hear that Jesus is headed out their way, and they say, Son of David, have mercy on us. And the crowd tries to silence them, but they cry out all the more. So this is kind of like a, I imagine it as like a kindergarten teacher moment. You're like, everyone be quiet, and just gets louder, right? They just cry out, cry out even more. Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And the amazing thing is Jesus stops, right? He's headed somewhere, but he stops and he calls out to them. And he asks them a very simple question, which is the same question that he asked the mother of James and John. He just said, what do you want me to do for you? And the reply is really simple. Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. We read that Jesus is moved with compassion. We see that this means that he was not only compassionate toward them in his heart, but that it developed from his heart into action where he moved toward them. So I'm going to read that again. It moved from his heart where he was feeling compassion to a place where he was moved with compassion. He touched their eyes and immediately they regained their sight and they followed him. And while I was exploring this text, I had a few questions bubble up for me. One of them was, why? The first why was, why did the crowd try and silence the blind men? Simple question, I think, but I think important. Maybe they think that these guys are beggars. All they want is money, because that's what blind men do, right? Ask for money. Maybe as an alternative line of thought, the crowd was saying, look, blind guys, Jesus is about to be king. Can we try and give him some space to celebrate this moment? Do you really have to be so down and out right now? Can we get that slide? <laughs> like, really? Guys, come on. We're about, about to go. He's like, let's do the celebration, okay? Let's party. We're going to take Jesus down the road into Jerusalem and then we'll send someone back for you. Like, it's cool. Like, we'll send, like we're just going to get down there. So if you guys just hang tight and 
stop like stop trying to be an Eeyore here. Like we just don't need you to be like this. And I, I what I kind of thought about is if the president, if I met Obama, I would want to be excited about meeting him and I wouldn't be like, hey man, you know I don't have health care, right? Like <laughs> Like, this is, like, I just met the president. Like, I'm going to talk to him about my taxes or something. Like, if I have an I-9 and I... <laughs> so... <laughs> uh, and, but maybe they think that these guys are just worth, are worthless and that they're already judged by God. Um, and this reminds me of something that the disciples ask in John chapter 9. So in John chapter 9, different gospel, but just an illustration of the cultural context. Uh, he's... Uh, if we go to that verse, Chris, um, it says, as he passed by, he saw a blind man um, from birth, a, a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And this potentially illustrates that there's a cultural taboo that these guys are blind because their circumstances and their family lineage has a greater sense of sin or worth worthlessness than other people, right? Because they ask, who, who sinned, this man or his parents? Like, something clearly went wrong that made this guy blind. And if Yahweh, Israel's God, is perfect and sinless, it means that he has likely already abandoned and judged these guys because they're, they're blind. And uh, I would imagine that these guys would be marginalized and considered to not be whole people in that culture they wouldn't be able to work. They really wouldn't be able to worship. Uh, they would have to sit, like, in the shit on the side of the road and beg people for money. And that was kind of their, that was their gig. And I was even thinking if somehow these guys were transposed into the Hebrew sacrificial system, right, where the Hebrew priests would sacrifice a, an animal to Yahweh for the repentant sins or celebration and stuff, these guys wouldn't even be allowed to be sacrificed because they were blind. They were blemished, and, and God only took perfect, you know, acceptable sacrifices, and blindness was not one of the things that was acceptable. And I, I just get a real strong sensation that the crowd wants to get these guys out of the way because they're, they're just super killing the vibe. They're killing the vibe of the moment. Just Kendrick Lamar in the moment. And... Uh, but what I love is, like, this is the sweet spot. Yeah, you can hear it. I'm not going to sing it, but you guys know the song. Uh, this is a real sweet spot for Jesus because he is going to show the crowd how the kingdom that he has been teaching about works and how it is going to work in the future. The blind men somehow know, I don't know how they know, that Jesus is going to be king. And I know this because they call out to him in that way. They basically said, hey you, the one who is about to become king, have mercy on us. It's as if they're saying, we know that you are the son of David. Because they call him son of David. <laughs> And we know, even though we're blind, we know that David used to be king. And we know that you are going to restore the wholeness and peace that David had. We know that you are going to give us 
wholeness and peace. This is the Hebrew idea of shalom that our fathers and mothers experienced during the golden age of Israel when David was king and Solomon was king. We know you're the son of David. We know what you're going to do. Have mercy on us. And we don't want money. We want to be restored. We want to be whole. And we are crying out to you to restore us. In Exodus chapter 3, if we can go to that, it says, The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So this cry of the, of the blind men is the same as this thing that God said he already heard thousands of years before, hundreds of years before, in the Israelites as they were trapped in Egypt. So what's happening here, and the reason I bring that up is because this moment is where Jesus is showing us that the heart of God has a deep desire to see all people liberated from suffering. So this is connecting back. This isn't a new idea. Jesus isn't really showing a new idea. It's that moment where Jesus says, if you've seen me, then you've seen the Father, right? This is one of those moments. The crowd wants to advance. They want to go forward with Jesus because they want to see him become king. By Jesus stopping on the side of the road to touch the outcasts, this is to show them what it will mean for him to become king and what his kingdom will be about. This moment on the road is a micro example of the macro picture of the kingdom at large. It's a fractal moment. Do you guys know what fractals are? Anyone? Okay. Can we see? Okay, so this is a fractal. This is a naturally occurring fractal. Uh, A fractal is a naturally occurring or mathematical set that exhibits a repeating pattern that displays at every scale. So you guys can see there's this large picture, but it's essentially made up of miniature versions of itself. Can we see the, the next slide? The golden ratio is the same way. And there's one more. And this is a fern leaf. And it's been, the negative has been treated red instead of green. But, I mean, you can see the tiniest leaf is the exact same shape as the mid-shape leaf, which is the same shape as the largest leaf. So you see the scale is happening at every level. This is what's happening. And uh, it's an illustration to show that the kingdom works in the same detail at every level or scale. The larger explains the smaller and vice versa. You guys tracking with me on that? The work of Jesus' kingdom in the big picture, as well as in Google Street View, is is the same. It's God's reply to have mercy on us. We want to be made whole. That's the work of the kingdom. Sorry, guys. There's a lot for us to learn here. 
but I want to talk about first what we can learn from the blind men. What we learn from them is that we need to recognize our blindness and take the risk to cry out to God to be made whole. We need to come clean about the fact that we don't have our shit together and we need to surrender to God and ask him to transform us. There's no other way. And some of you have been calling out to God for a long time. And truthfully, you don't feel like there's ever been a change. Some of us are in that boat. Some of us in this room. And some people that we know. And some other people that they know. And the response is, why isn't this working? If I'm calling out, why do I keep suffering? Even though I'm doing what God has asked me to do, why isn't this working? One thing that we talk about in the vineyard, which is the organization that our church is part of, like a larger organization, is the truth that God's kingdom has come in Jesus. And as he has showed us how to live and who we are to be, he has relieved us from the yoke of sin and the burden of death and given us his Holy Spirit for comfort. However, there's a great tension, and the tension is that his kingdom has not yet fully come. And that there's still suffering and that there's still pain and that there's still sadness in our lives. And I mean that in a very personal sense. And so we're caught in the tension. Uh, There's a solution that would say, nothing matters, the pain in your life doesn't matter, forget about it, just think about the life ahead. There's another solution that would say that all that matters is the suffering in your life. And we know that neither one of those really hold up in a court of law, so to speak. We think through them, we experience them, we realize that's not the solution, and really what we're left with is living in the tension of the moment. But we ask, and we cry out to God, let your kingdom come. Let your kingdom come in our lives. We need you to rescue us. We need you to enter into our suffering with us. We need you to teach us how to enter into one another's suffering. We need you to teach us how to get one another's backs in the midst of the hardest times, even if those times have been lasting for 20 years. If my life looks way more messed up than yours, or vice versa, if my life looks wonderful in contrast to one to the one that you are living, this is not indicative of God's posture toward either one of us. We are all his people, and he has heard our cry, and he will deliver us. Jesus demonstrates that his mercy is coming for all people, no matter if they are outcast, burned out, used up, or even an offering that would not be acceptable to God. So we have the blind men. That's what we learn from them. The crowd is an interesting bunch. Uh, We have something to learn from them too. I think it's just that we can't squash anyone's voice when they're calling out to God. It seems pretty easy. Don't squash anyone's voice when they're calling out to God. But I think most of the time, the way things that are meant to be done socially dictate part of me dictates to us 
how we should respond in certain moments. I'm sure you guys can think of a moment where the way things are meant to be done prevented you from letting someone speak up. And we need to recognize that there's no one that is too far gone to be rescued from God. There's no amount of evil or hatred or indifference or narcissism or substance abuse or sexual abuse. There's no amount of love of money or hedonism that can prevent someone from being heard by God if they're crying out to him. He already said in Exodus, I have heard my people crying out and I'm going to rescue them. We also cannot let our misunderstanding of what we think the kingdom is supposed to be silence the voices of those that are calling out to God. They cannot be blocked by the depth of their poverty or the magnitude of their loss and grief. They can't be blocked by their connection to the New Age spiritual or Scientology or crystals or landmark forum or anything. We must be advocates for them. It's so easy to just say, she's too far gone. Or he's too far gone. We also cannot let our false understanding of an eternity-only kingdom dictate our actions. If in our version of the kingdom, we don't have to do anything, except for wait for Jesus to return, and therefore having a passive stance toward others, we have to ask God to change our thinking because it's absolutely wrong. That's how I grew up, though. I mean, I grew up, Jesus came to save us, and now we just wait for him to come back so we can go to heaven, and all the sinners on the earth are going to burn for eternity, so who cares? That was the way I grew up. Now, I don't think that's really what the pastors in my church wanted me to learn, but that's what they communicated. And it was a wrong or at least aggressively incomplete story of the kingdom. The hard part is that moving toward others and having change thinking is going to cost us something. It may cost us our well-being. It may cost us relationships with our families. It may cost us our careers. It may cost us our bank accounts and our comfort. And it even may cost us our dreams, no matter how long we've had those dreams or how they were given to us by whomever they were given to you. All of that stuff is on the table when you decide to follow Jesus. All of it. You don't get to hang on to any of it. I had a friend named David that sleeps somewhere under a bridge on Sunset Boulevard. I used to see him all the time at Trader Joe's where he would sit and ask for money. I haven't seen him in a while, but sometimes we used to sit and talk, but I really never had any idea what he was saying. He was struck by a car and couldn't really walk and couldn't really talk very well either. 
His face was almost covered with a super nasty beard that was full of dirt and oil and mucus. He had a shopping cart full of garbage that he pushed around and used as a walker of sorts to make his trek between where he stayed and the Trader Joe's on Hyperion. A few times, we would give him money or we would buy him lunch. And I think that he probably used the money to buy booze. But I learned that I was okay with that somehow and I felt at least I was doing something to bring some sort of relief to his suffering. I say that I had a friend named David. Because I have not seen him in a long time. I don't know where he is. I don't know if he's okay. I don't know if he's alive. It makes me sad that I was not able to help him more in his great need. It makes me sad that I was not willing to do more for him because of how great the cost was for me. We are here in this neighborhood for a reason. One of the reasons we're in this neighborhood is because we have been told by the apostles and by Jesus to remember the poor. Remembering the poor is a thing that if you don't keep pushing to the center of what you're doing, it will just move out to the outside. It's like on a potter's wheel, it'll just slide out. But that's why we're here. That's one of the reasons why we're here. If you wonder why there's no parking, that's one of the reasons why we're here. If we want to be like Jesus, we need to become hearers and doers of his word. And this comes from learning to be present with ourselves and with the Holy Spirit. What's interesting about this moment on the road is that Jesus heard the Holy Spirit and he stopped. He was going somewhere. He had a job to do. He actually had a job to do that's more important than any of the jobs we'll ever do. I mean, I, just to like kind of put it in perspective, right? Whatever it is that I'm going to do when I leave here, there's no way it's as important as Jesus walking to the center of Jerusalem, right? Where he would be betrayed. But he stopped and he listened. Thank you, Justin, for doing that song. Justin wrote that song, Your Spirit Speaks to Me and I Am Listening. This is our posture toward God. We believe you're speaking to us. We're listening. And when we hear the Spirit speak and we know that we are meant to do something, we have to move toward it. We have to obey. It's easy to not obey. For me, it's easy to stay in my car and just drive by. To be a hearer and a doer is not the same as hearing God speak. Because a lot of us can hear it. 
But maybe we hear it through the spirit, we hear it through the scripture, we hear it through music, we hear it when we're in creation. But a lot of times we just ignore it. But if we want to be like Jesus, we have to ask him to transform us. Ask him to make us compassionate and ask him to give us the courage to move in that compassion. Jesus had the moment of compassion and then he moved in his compassion. And just consider again the macro picture of the kingdom and see your life as a micro moment within that macro. See where there's a consistency of the scale. Does your life look like what Jesus' kingdom looks like? And what's cool about economies of scale is you don't have to have it all figured out to make it work. An example is you can live generously even if you don't have anything. You don't have to have everything in order to be generous, right? And that plays out that if you had to wait until you had everything to be generous, by the time you got to the place where you had everything, you wouldn't be generous because you wouldn't have been allowing that replicated scale idea to come into your life in a, in a finite way. There's always time to move toward the marginalized. And we live in a city, we live in cities, and uh, the city tells us there's no time for anyone else or anything else. And the kingdom is upside down. The kingdom says there's always time for the marginalized. There's always time for the poor. There's always time for the outcast. There's always time for the oppressed. And some of us know because we were the poor, we were the outcast, we were the oppressed. And someone in the kingdom made time for us. The hardest part about this is this seems like a lot of sacrifice. It is. No questions asked. It will cost you everything. But this is also the place where true life starts. If your approach to the Christian life so far has been about like behavior management, how can I behave? How can I stop doing more of this? How can I start doing more of this? If that's been your approach, uh, that's, that's not the right approach. Um, there's a transformative thing that needs to happen in our lives with God. It's not transactional, but it's transformative. And that's the beginning of walking into a journey with Christ where you're partnering with him to do the work of the kingdom. And it's, it's actually exciting. And it's super risky and it's a, lot of, it's a lot of fun, but again, it's really costly. And I think it's just important for us to consider what that would be like to just go, okay, like I've been working this, I've been working this Christianity puzzle for a while. It's like one of those puzzles like where there's one piece. It's like a plastic puzzle you used to get in your stocking. There's one piece and you have to move all the other pieces around. 
And eventually I just would take the edge off and take everything out. <laughs> but, but my point is like that puzzle, taking the edge off, that is how it's actually supposed to work. What I mean is this, it being this laborious thing where it's all about what I've done or what I haven't done or what I can do or I can't do, that's not the point. It's about being transformed. And then out of that transformation, resting in who we are as God has made us to be and then moving forward with him. So let's just, ask, let's just stand up and ask the Holy Spirit to come. So if you guys are comfortable, just open your hands. You don't have to. It's just a posture saying, Lord, I'm ready to receive what you have. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you will come and transform us in this moment. God, we ask that you would break off all of our old ways of thinking about what it means to be a part of your family, about what it means to be a Christian, about what it means to earn life with you in a meaningful way, of what it means to manage our sins to a place where we can finally be acceptable in your sight. God, help us understand that your mercy is here for us. God, we do not have to perform to have your mercy. And we are so thankful. God, we are so thankful for that. So God, we just ask that you would lift that up off of our shoulders, the old way of thinking. And God, we confess that oftentimes our version of the kingdom, our version of your kingdom, <laughs> looks more like our kingdom. And God, we recognize that this is our culture trying to choke us out. This is our culture telling us if our thing isn't the best thing, if we don't get ahead, if we don't have the best family or the best zip code or area code, that it doesn't count. And so God, we just confess that to you that we get caught up in what our culture tells us. So God, we ask you to restore us. We ask you to change our thinking. And God, we see that this is actually the root of why we cannot be available for anyone else in our life. And so it's not really a light thing, this, this being um, 
responding to our culture. It's not really a lightweight thing. It's like, oh, I just kind of go with the culture. It's not really that big of a deal. It's actually what's preventing the, the truth of your kingdom to fully come into our lives and fully be available. And God, we want to be available. We want to be available to see your kingdom come because your Holy Spirit is inside of us and it has shown us that. It has shown us that the kingdom is real and that it matters and that you are setting people free. So God, we just ask that you will make us whole. Raise your hand if you want to be whole. God, we want to be whole. We're blind. We don't want money. We don't want your attention. We want you to make us whole. We want to see. We want our eyes to be opened. And for our friends who are in the depths, we know that if one part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers with it. And if one part of the body rejoices, the whole body rejoices with it. And we are with you in your suffering. We are behind you. We don't have all the solutions. We don't have the convenience of knowing when the kingdom is finally going to come, but we are with you in the moment. We're with you financially. We are with you emotionally. We want to be with you in friendship. We're going to um, pray for a few things. Um, if you're just feeling right now like super challenged, um, that kind of uh, stung it's a good thing. And so don't move right now. Just stay in that posture and, and worship God and ask, ask him what that means for you. And then um, I would just love a few people. Um, some of Pam's family is here, Michael and Al and a few others. So we're just going to come around them um, and just lay our hands on them and bless them and encourage them and pray for them. So they're just in this kind of middle row right here. So um, why don't you, a few, a few folks, just come pray for them. And then I'd also love, um, we have another visitor here, a couple visitors, Jimmy and Celeste. Will you raise your hand? They're in the back there. They're, um, they're thinking about church planting, and we just want to, like, bless what the Holy Spirit is doing in them today. So um, if a few folks want to come around and listen and pray for them, that would be good. And Justin's just going to um, do some worship. And um, for the next 10 minutes, we're just going to kind of stay in this posture of praying for each other.